Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. We're also grateful to those of you who offer member support, for which I'm pleased to offer in return member-only content curated with our authors and myself. You can find out more about this member-only content and how you can help authors give voice to their written words at charlottereaderspodcast.com. When Landis is not getting under the cover at bookstores, at events, and on the road, he does it in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. But enough with the prologue. Let's get under the covers. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Hey, listeners. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Rears Podcast. Today, I'm visiting with author Leslie Hooten uh, and her book, Before Anyone Else, which was just released on March 24th and is Leslie's debut novel. Before Anyone Else examines the complicated relationship between love and ambition and explores how our earliest relationships and experience shape us into who we ultimately become. A beautiful book, says Kevin Wilson, New York Times bestselling author of Nothing to See Here and The Family Fang. Hey, welcome to the show, Leslie. Thanks, Landis. Yeah, congratulations on your debut novel. Thanks. <laughs> Are you excited? <laughs> oh, among other things. <laughs> among other things. How does it feel to have a uh, debut novel? At 60, it feels pretty good. <laughs> Has this been a lifelong dream of yours? Yes. Uh, and when did you first come up with the idea? Um, I came up with the idea about five years ago when my next-door neighbor called me her bae, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know what that was, so I Googled it like we do everything, and it meant before anyone else. And I mm-hmm. thought, ooh, that would make a great book title. Yeah, so how did you feel when before anyone else uh, arrived in the mail from your publisher? It, 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 it's, be- it's a beautiful cover, which yeah. I can take no credit yeah. for. And, it, I mean, it just stopped my heart. I mean, mm. it literally stopped my heart. Mm. And so uh, you're just kind of now getting uh, started with the book tour, right? I mean, uh, so what do you have planned? What are you gonna be, where are you going to be going to talk about your book? I will be at Park Road Books. I go to Chapel Hill on the 16th of April to do an, a, a joint event at Flyleaf with Jill McCorkle. And then on the 19th of April, I will be going to Nashville to do a joint appearance with Kevin Wilson at Parnassus. That's great. In terms of, uh, you know, this idea of touring around talking about a book, uh, are you excited about that? Are you excited to get out there and share your story with the world? Yes, uh, ambivalent, excitement, anxiety. You know, it's all rolled into one, Landis. Right, and, right. Uh, uh, well, just relax. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what it's about because you wrote it. You can, yes. talk, you can talk about it, and people are going to be 
they're going to want to he- hear it. But uh, you didn't start out as an author. You you got a Bachelor of Arts and a, and a Master's uh, from Auburn University and a, and a Juris Doctorate from Sanford University. And so like me, you're a recovering attorney, right? Uh-huh. I am a recovering attorney. <laughs> and our attorney uh-huh. friends would say we were the smart ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How's, how's your recovery going? Yeah. It's going pretty well. I don't uh-huh. relapse too much. That's good. Did uh, writing this book help you in your recovery? Yes. Yeah. How so? There, there's only one lawyer character in the book. Okay. Did you treat the lawyer character well or not? I did. I okay. did. All right. That's good. Uh, you, you said to me uh, that you participated in the Sewanee's Writers Conference, which you accepted to, and, and have studied there for many years with the likes of Alice McDermott, Jill McCorkle, and Richard Bosch. Uh, has that been a good experience for you? Oh, Swanee is my happy place. It okay. is the beloved mountain. It stirs creativity, and you're just with your people. Mm-hmm. So before we get under the covers to talk about this book, let's talk about the book cover itself um, so that our listeners can get a sense since they can't see it. Um, you said you couldn't take credit for it. Um, tell us what we see here on this cover. Well, it is in the eye of the beholder, Landis, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was what the um, artist, her her name is Emily, was trying to get at. Is it it flower petals? Is it confetti? Is it modern art? Is it um, paint swirls? Or is it a life imploding? For Emily, she said she she saw every, every aspect of that in the book when she read it to do the cover. Mm, there certainly are a lot of colors, right? I and mean, we get yes. uh, the reds and the yellows and the greens and all shades of those. Um, did this just, I mean, did they just send this to you one day and say, this is going to be your cover? Or did you have any input or what? No, they, they said that they had um, contacted somebody um, outside to do the cover because they love the book so much and she has done Colson Whitehead's covers for years and she this is what she saw and when they sent it to me I said ooh that's loud but then I thought ooh they're my happy colors Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so I loved it and so they loved it and so we just it sort of it was we all agreed, so that was great. Well, look at it this way. With all the books that there are on shelves and stores, this one will stand out a bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you ready to uh, you ready to get under the covers here? Yeah. Okay. If you like our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, please consider leaving a short written review about Charlotte Reader's podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you leave a review, it helps authors reach more listeners. You can keep up with news about the show and member-only content for our member supporters by joining our email list. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join the list, we will give you a free ebook written by me, the first book in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by OrthoCarolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, so we're talking about, uh, before anyone else, uh, Leslie Hooten's debut novel. Leslie, uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of from a high level what this book is about, maybe a little synopsis of the book for our listeners. Could you do that for us? Sure. Um, It is about a woman who was raised by men, and they're all famous chefs, 
but she can't cook her way out of a paper bag. <laughs> and so she has to figure out what she wants to do in the world, what she wants to be. And she finds that her gift to make the world beautiful is to make restaurants beautiful. And so, but she doesn't have a very good track record at making her own life beautiful. So mm-hmm. it's about her finding her place in the world. So she's a designer of upscale restaurants. She's 30 years old. Her name is Bailey Ann Edgeworth. We're going to get to those uh, a little bit about that name in a little bit here. Uh, but uh, she's got a brother, Henry, and he's got a best friend, Griffin. And the brothers are sort of stars in the restaurant field. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And they're known as the Color Wheel Boys. What, 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 where does that name come from? Well, their first restaurant is Vert, which is the color green. And so the person that the design was the, their restaurant designer is a branding expert. He said, well, your next restaurant has to be Blanc. And then your next restaurant has to be Noir. And then out of that came their nickname, the Color Wheel Boys, and it stuck. And as ba- as Bailey says, nicknames have a way of sticking. Mm. And Bailey, uh, you say, is determined to chart her own course to not just be known as Hank's daughter, who's also a chef, or Henry's sister, or whatever, as you say, to Griffin. Right. And so she wants to go to New York uh, and sort of chase her her vision of what her life should be like. Uh, but then things start spinning out of control for her, right? Yes. What kind? Of, what kind of obstacles does uh, does Bailey face throughout this book? She faces uh, the first obstacle is just being a woman in a man's world, and then the the second is trying to uh, sort of escape her her culinary lineage, and then she gets herself involved with a a bad boy that's mm. sort of threatens to bring her whole life and job and reputation down with him so yeah and and throughout it uh, i'm sensing because though i've read parts of the book um i'm sensing that she still got this attraction to griffin right uh, yes. who who is not her brother but who's kind of been raised by the family and uh there are a lot of before anyone else is it going on in this book and she had a before anyone else with him too right yes a few a few <laughs> a few a few one of which was uh, her first uh, sexual encounter i guess and uh and her first kiss yeah yeah so it, it it deals with love it deals with ambition um you know in the opening chapter she's sort of surrounded by men who cook uh what drew you to write about food and the restaurant world well, I just, I liked it. I eat out a lot, and maybe I'm a little bit of a foodie myself, but I would go into restaurants at all hours and talk to the chefs, and I discovered that they were very interesting people, Landis, mm. and they had interesting stories, and so I decided to just build a world around that, that them, and I didn't know of a book that had a restaurant designer in it so i decided to make the female the restaurant designer and not the chef mm-hmm. uh, and you set it in buckhead georgia in the atlanta area and also in new york city do you have some connections uh do you just want to write about those places or what i lived in atlanta for about 10 years and i loved the the culinary scene when i lived there I traveled a lot to New York and ate at some of the 
the best restaurants in New York. So I, I just sort of found it all fascinating, beautiful, and I wanted to capture that. So with the first novel, sometimes the author's own life experiences uh, sneak into the text somewhere. Did that happen in your case? Yes. I'm from a small town in Alabama, and I have always been known as so-and-so's granddaughter, so-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's whatever. And I just, I couldn't wait to leave my small town in Alabama and make my own name, make my own place in the world. And that's sort of is a springboard for Bailey's desire. All right, Leslie, so now we're going to have a little read from the book. You're going to start, uh, a pretty good place to start at the beginning. So let's start with uh, chapter run one and just uh, read a little bit from there. Okay, as Julie Andrews says, the beginning is a very good place to start. So here we go. Chapter one. As I walked into Vert, memories washed over me. They filled me with unmitigated delight. But if I'm being perfectly honest, they also fill me with a little disgust. Two-thirds standing water, one part full-blown tsunami. I made my way to the bar. The bartender grinned at me and said, Merry Christmas, the usual, although it wasn't a question. I grinned back. My heart had never been immune to Griffin Hardwick. If Griffin and I were a married couple, we would have kissed when he handed me the cocktail. We weren't married. We weren't even a couple, were we? I would have picked you up at the airport, Griffin said, and deprived these patrons of Atlanta's most underrated, I started quoting Atlanta's magazine's profile piece on Griffin and my brother Henry. Bartender, Griffin said humbly. Mixologist, I corrected. As I rolled my suitcase into his office, I took another look around. Nope. The green look faded and washed out. The fixtures and hardware looked downright decrepit. I still disagreed with the vibe of Vert, the boys' first restaurant. They had hired Julian Palmer to create the design. He was the best restaurant designer in the business. I should know. I worked for him in New York. He was a good boss. He believed in brands and did an extraordinary job of branding his restaurants. My brother Henry and Griffin may have come up with the name Vert, but the next restaurant, Julian named Blanc. And then after that, he nicknamed them the Colorwell Boys. And it stuck. They were not only famous in Atlanta, but around the country as well. I closed the door to the office and relaxed on the sofa. I took a satisfying sip of my drink, a sidecar. Griffin had first made it for me when I was just 18, before anyone else, and it had become my signature cocktail. I fished around in my purse and fingered the piece of paper a little longer than I should have. I couldn't get Griffin's signature cocktail in New York, but I wanted to be the next Julian Palmer, and I couldn't do that in Atlanta, and I wanted it more. But there was Griffin. 
my heart had a stubborn gravitational pull towards him. Not only had Griffin made my signature cocktail before anyone else, he was the epicenter of all my first, my first driving lesson, my first crush, my first kiss, the first person to recognize that I had design talent, the first man I had ever been with the same night he concocted the sidecar for me. I allowed the memory to wash over me as it always had. Comfort food. Okay, Leslie, thanks for that reading. Um, so back to the name for a minute, Bailey Ann Edgeworth. If we look at the first uh, first letters of uh, her her name, B-A-E, Bailey Ann Edgeworth, before anyone else, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because uh, you got a little scene here that uh, you say that uh, Daddy called me Bay, but he wasn't the first. That honor, too, belonged to Griffin. He'd been the first to come up with my nickname, Bay. Was it short for Bailey or for my whole name? Bailey Ann Edgeworth. Or was it because of my monogram? But like the color wheel boys, my nickname stuck. And you said it came from the Urban Dictionary, too, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So did you have fun with that uh, throughout the book, the Before Anyone Else? Because it looks like you drop it in a lot of different places. Does that continue throughout the book? Yes. Yeah. And, and like men, Landis, yeah. that's the way their her monogram would be for them, not the last name in the middle like we like we do, but mm-hmm. that's the way men, because as she says somewhere in the book, being raised by men is like one step away from being raised by a pack of wild wolves. <laughs> that's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's talk a little bit writing life for a minute. Um, you said you've wanted to write this book for a long time. You've been going to the writer conference for many years. Uh, when did you start working on this book? I started working on this book about five years ago in the middle of, um, you know, kind of a crazy, difficult time. And I would say Bay saved my life. How so? Well, because during the day, my mother, my my mother was very brilliant and she was she had dementia, and I was trying to settle her in, but I was also going through a divorce. So I was spending part of the day with divorce attorneys. That's where the attorney figures in. Well, that's a terrible part of the. You don't want to spend half a day with divorce attorneys, do you? <laughs> or at a, in a dementia center. So right. at night, I just wanted to, to surround myself with some things that were beautiful. And mm-hmm. that that became one of Bailey's signature phrases, life is too short not to be surrounded by something beautiful. And so I took her advice, and she gave me advice all through um, this process. So that's why I say she saved my life. But she also changed it. <laughs> yeah, because you're going to be out now touring with yes. the book, right? Yes. Yeah. So you said you kind of talk to this character this character sort of became your friend through this process uh-huh. did you have anyone in mind when you came up with this character uh, you, you know she certainly um, we certainly have some similar characteristics but I'm not a tomboy I'm not a I'm not a fat uh, interior decorator whatsoever um, but so she was just sort of a, a an amalgamation of friends I know and people I know and 
somebody I would like to to be because mm-hmm. she got her her act together a mm-hmm. lot sooner than I got mine mm-hmm. together. And so, um, were there challenges for you in writing this book along the way? And uh, did you kind of take that uh, as inspiration to keep going? I mean, what what what, what was the hardest part of uh, this project for you? <laughs> Everything. Um, well, the, at the beginning of my writing, I, I had a, um, an agent in New York uh, who was a big agent, uh, and I asked her if we could reserve a, a book, a book title or copyright, trademark, you know, that kind of thing. And she said, "Well, Leslie, I can give you a list of New York attorneys that would really help you with that." And I said, no offense, Gail, but I'm pretty lawyered up down here in Charlotte, so yeah. I don't need to add any more, especially New York attorneys, to my uh, to my payroll. So um, plus, book titles are the kind of thing that just get repeated over and over again. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, did you have some allies along the way that supported you through this process? Oh, um, I have a beautiful village of friends, Landis. Um, you know, one one is downstairs, but um, mm-hmm. also at Swanee. I mean, Jill McCorkle has been my number one cheerleader, and uh, during some of the days that got were really bleakest, she sent me a cheerleader, and <laughs> and so I keep that as a little um, talisman right by my computer. And mm-hmm. and Kevin uh, Wilson was always very very supportive. So I've had friends that are supportive that really didn't know necessarily what the writing world was like. And then I've had writers in the writing world that were very supportive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very lucky that way. So And you've overcome some physical struggles in your life too, right? So. Right. And that that probably is the number one reason if you really want to know the truth why I became a writer. Um my physical world was small, but in my mind, I didn't want to limit it to just what I could do. Right. So I, I had villages of characters in my mind from the time I was a little girl. And so my mother was an English teacher, and so I had to stay inside with her. And she was, I would write little ditties for her, and she would, I would show them to her. And at five years old, she was telling me what um, the word meter was and how to get my (laughs) sentences right. And at 10, it was alliteration. And I remember her taking a poetry book down. It was Robert Browning. It was Ode to a Spanish Cloister. And it was um, Ode to a um, um, Water Your Damn Flower Pots Do. And she said, now, Leslie, it's a bad word, but you can see how it makes the sentence pop. And so any time after that I wanted to say a bad word, I just quoted that first. That's great. That's great. So your process, uh, you kind of set up in your own writing desk in your home. And uh, And I dictate because I can't. My doctors, the men in white coat that also are big instrumental in all this, they don't want me to type, so I... I dictate, so it has mm-hmm. to. My my dictation device has to listen to this Southern English. I got you. And so, so you can imagine some some of the words that pop out. So you're because of the what you dealt with fisco of your life. You, you have to dictate uh, this book, right? This can, whole book was dictated. Wow. Okay. And uh, 
did you learn to do that over time? I mean, is yes. That, okay, because one thing, I mean, as a lawyer, I, I used to dictate letters, but that's nothing like trying to dictate a book, right? Right. Yeah, and do you, and you somehow try to keep track of what you're doing with the storyboard or something so you can kind of keep, because if you don't have anything on the paper, it's just on audio, it's kind of hard to figure out, okay, where have I been and where am I going next, right? Right, and when they made all these changes, it was like, I need to print out one version of the old version and then one version of my working working version and then it and I and I made it be red so I would know some of the new changes so mm. it, it was it was really it, it, it can be challenging but I tell you what comes in handy are index cards which I don't know if you use that to study for your bar but I I did for mine so I was like oh dear lord I'm getting back to the index cards again so let's, let's don't take us back to studying for the bar exam okay <laughs> I bring up some bad nightmares, right? I know, yeah. I know. Well, so you really did. Um, this really has been uh, a real uh, effort on your part, but also something that you loved doing, right? And so in the end, you've got this beautiful book to show for it. You're going to be out talking about it with uh, friends and neighbors in the Charlotte community, but you're also going out and beyond that area. What um, What do you uh, What do you hope that uh, readers get from your book well that it's never too old as as george Eliot would say it's never too old to become what you're meant to become or as winston churchill says never ever give up because somebody can look at me and say well she's just getting her dream to come true and I, you know, you we, you know we all you never know when your second act is coming right and yeah. And if you give up, you'll never know. So enjoy Act Two. Enjoy getting out there on the on the book circuit. Uh, congratulations, uh, Leslie, for this accomplishment and uh, this this fine writing, this uh, wonderful book. Uh, I hope uh, I hope people enjoy it, and I hope you have a great time touring. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Landis, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written word. Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author. But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life of a local or regional author. Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone. If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter. We'd love to have you as a member. And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me. Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media. Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions? You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.